This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. This is What Happens If with Daniel and Jan on Joy. Got a little cup of tea, don't you? Got a little cup of tea, settling down in front of the old wireless, and you thought, I'm going to get me some what happens if. There's all this stuff on TV, movies coming out of nowhere. What is all that? Uh, I think there's, I think it'd be fair enough to say that there's a kind of saturation with screen content. There are so many stories being told. And I think that on the whole, that's a good thing. But I also would feel comfortable in saying that I'm not sure that the majority of people fully consider what it is they watch, how those products are made, developed, um, overseen. And one area that's always fascinated me and I've found it unendingly interesting to investigate is the concept of gender and sex in screen content. There's a lot that's been written. There's a quite a history around it. If you go back, you can, I mean, you can easily, I mean, I've got it right in front of me right now, but you can easily Wikipedia, Laura Mulvey as an example. She wrote a, 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 se- a seminal essay on, on the topic, um, titled visual pleasure and narrative cinema yeah visual pleasure and narrative cinema in the 70s and it was sort of a call to arms uh for the feminist movement of the time and she drew on partly psychoanalysis um and moved into bringing in um the work of Jacques Lassane. Is that his name? Yeah. Oh, I did well there. My university professor would be proud. And one of the big ideas that she brought up, Mulvey brought up, was this idea of the male gaze. 
um, which in essence gets to the idea that there is a point of view being set up for you in your viewing of screen content. And at the time, Mulvey and others, her, I think, long-term partner, Peter Wallen, were, were talking about cinema. But now we live in a world where a lot of people have cinemas in their home. They walk around with one in their pocket and they see uh, content of all kinds all throughout the day. So how do we deal with that problem? What are the points of view that are being set up by, I suppose, the dominant cinema culture, which continues to be Hollywood? Uh, so, you know, there's a lens there, right? The Hollywood lens is a specific... Um, you know, it has its own style, it has its own um, tropes, you know, outside of the generic tropes, um, the, the, the format and the, the structure of a, of a Hollywood film, there's a lot that we take for granted, you know, just simply the idea of continuity, ed- continuity editing, um, got that out eventually. You know, the idea that uh, events basically happen in the correct order. That time is um, skewed in a way that um, gives the stories a, a certain kind of feeling to them. And like I said, uh, from Mulvey to now... I think we find ourselves at a kind of a crossroads uh, given the context around, um, you know, we have, we have the, the Rush trial here in Australia. We've had the Weinstein affair over in the US. And we now have on our plate a whole library of content that its character has changed, right? Because the man, let's take Weinstein as an example, the man behind, I mean, countless films who has such authority in the areas um, of film production, film development, film distribution, that man isn't what he, we either isn't either either isn't what we thought he was or he isn't what we want him to be and i think it's important that we now consider what point of view was he setting up what point of view are other filmmakers setting up who are the the important players in um the production of screen content and is it worth looking under the hood a little bit to, I suppose, get more critical of the whole thing? Um, I think we can do better. So today I'm going to be speaking with um, Naomi McDougall-Jones, who's going to be 
speaking to me from the Big Apple. And uh, she's carved for herself uh, a wonderful career in independent filmmaking and is a champion for uh, equality of opportunity um, for women in filmmaking. Uh, She'll do a much better job of explaining that journey than I can. So uh, we're going to head to a break and... When we come back, we're going to speak with Naomi. This is What Happens If on Joy 94.9. Joy! Okay, welcome back to What Happens If on Joy 94.9. My name's Jan DiPietro, and today I'm speaking with Naomi McDougall-Jones in the Big Apple. You are in New York, right, Naomi? I think so. It's hard to know day to day, but I'm like 90% sure. Yeah, what with the midterms coming up, it must feel like uh, out of space sometimes. Oh boy. Oh boy. T minus 24 hours here, so (laughs) we might drive our country permanently off a cliff. Thanks for having me. (laughs) No, thank you for coming on. Um, So, by way of introduction, um, Naomi and I went to theatre school together. You did. More than, well, about 10 years ago now. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, golly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that happened. And uh, and um, so since then, you've carved for yourself a, a very interesting and exciting career as an independent filmmaker. And I've yeah. sort of fo- followed your journey. So do you want to maybe... Um, you know, for the Australian public out there, maybe just um, <laughs> give us a little rundown of how you came to be where you're at now and, and perhaps what your interest is in um, in being a filmmaker. Yeah, well, so I got out of um, acting school with you and um, was uh, was very sure that I was going to be a theatre actress. Um, so that plan has gone up in smoke. <laughs> um but uh, basically, you know, I started pounding the pavement as we do and very quickly real- realized that the roles available for women were terrible and um, s- sort of slowly came to the conclusion that I was going to spend the rest of my night- life playing naked corpses right, um, yeah. if I continued on this path. Yeah. Um, and, and in the meantime, I had gotten cast in a lot of film um sometimes as a naked corpse and sometimes Mm -hmm. as a very supportive girlfriend. And, uh, although I wasn't in love with the rules I was getting, I was, I, I fell in love with that medium because I think after you make theater enough in New York, you realize you're just making it basically for the same 300 people over and over. Mm. And I realized we wanted to make art that could reach more people. Mm. Um, so these two ideas sort of converged and, um, one day I was having lunch with Caitlin Gold, who was another ADA classmate of ours. Yeah. And we were sort of bitching about all of this and um, said, like, I don't know, I guess we should just make a film. Like, we could just make a feature film. Like, we were at, on all these sets with all these people who seemed to not know a great deal more than we did and were definitely less organized than we are. We, we were. So we are just like, we'll just make a feature, knowing nothing about anything. Um and so we we set out to do just that. I, I had been writing plays, and so I wrote a feature screenplay. And then I rewrote it 52 more times after that. <laughs> and uh, and we basically spent a year having coffee with anybody who would have coffee with us, asking yep. them how to make a movie. And um, 
we so I had written a film about two women and we had an all female creative team and the refrain we heard over and over and over again was oh well uh, no one wants to see films about women there's no market for those films you should really make, think about making something else could you put more blood in it is there a lesbian angle you could explore <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and also oh girls you know you are going to have to get a male producer on board at some point just so that people will trust you with their money yeah right. um, just loud in a meeting so this was all becoming very flabbergasting to me so we did um so we made that movie it's called imagine i'm beautiful and we made it for eighty thousand dollars and um it ended up winning a bunch winning a bunch of awards on the festival circuit and actually getting a theatrical release which is a pretty big deal for a Mm. film that size but in the course of all of this i learned two things a i definitely wanted to make movies for the rest of my life and b uh, they don't actually let women do that in the system. Um, and I became a women in film activist and advocate, and that's led to a whole other set of things, including becoming an accidental venture capitalist and starting a fund to finance films by female directors and um, getting a book deal to, to write a book, which I'm in the process of doing now about it. And um, in the midst of all of which, I made my second feature film, Bite Me, which has just completed post-production. So... That's a rundown. That the, That's a rundown. If I've ever... <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm curious about a few things you mentioned there. So, I, I feel like, uh, the, the problem that you ran into in part was that the producers have a, have a, have a kind of a point of view about what's going to work and what's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is one thing that I, I find, um, uh, pervasive is the word, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. In the sense that I'm not sure that most people know, wh- like, A, what a producer actually does, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, and B, yeah. and B, what sort of where the producer falls in the, in the, I suppose, the pecking order of yeah. the, the, the production of, of film content. And, and let's, let's just say screen content more broadly. So perhaps it's worth just zeroing in on that for a second. I mean, you said, you know, they, they said like, where's the blood? Where's the, you know, where's the, the lesbian interest? Yeah. And I mean, uh, I, 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 maybe we should just unpack a little bit how you see the role of a producer in your own experience of it. And then perhaps in your, in your dealings with other producers. Sure. Um, and, and before I get into that, just to jump off something you said is, um, there, there are really a, an astonishing number of people in the film industry who have no idea how anything works and just say with great authority, whatever was said to them last at a cocktail party yeah, right, yeah. about what works and what doesn't work and what's true and what's not true. So there's this, inc- I mean, more than I think any other industry, there's this incredibly, as you say, pervasive spread of false knowledge, mm. Mm. Um, which has has gone a long way to perpetuating the systematic prevention of women from entering it in in roles behind the camera. Because for for one thing, this notion that uh, people oh well, people don't want to see films about women, and people still say that to me in meetings. Like, well, you know, there's no audience for them; they don't make money. But da da da. And as I actually began investigating that, um, the reality is. Films by women make, on average, 37 cents more per dollar spent uh, than films by men. Mm, so, right. it, like, it's just not true, but mm. but it's so 
pervasively just spouted and spread. Mm. Um, and it's very hard to convince people that it's not true. Um, but to get into what a producer does, so basically on a film, the producer, there are often a, a whole constellation of producers because making a film is sort of an impossible task. And so there are a lot of different people that have to carry different pieces of that over time. But but you can think about the lead producer as sort of being the CEO of a small startup company. Um, so generally speaking, they're sort of the head of everything and often they didn't necessarily originate the project. Usually in indie film, the project would have originated with the director or the writer, but they're usually the person sort of, um, collecting all of the pieces, collecting the money probably, and hiring certainly the, the writer and director, if they're not already attached to the project. And, um, usually they have final say on most mm. decisions other than the creative decisions Th- this the is, director. This is something that I, I'd like to stop at and have a little look at, which is that th- this is sort of the part that I'm curious about um, and I find m- misses the mark on probably most of the general public, which is that this this is a person or group of people or, or, of which there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be all that many um, of them uh, in any given project and they are making significant choices uh absolutely uh, uh, you know in the life of any given product or project and it filters down from there right i mean like you said they they might say to you as a a female writer well we're not going to make this unless you attach this male director and you can say you can either walk or you can say all right i guess i'll have a male director tell my female story about a woman you know, and and at that point, right. something's something's gotten lost. In my view, something's gotten lost. Absolutely. Um, and and depending on the contracts, those the producers may also have the final cut of the movie. Um, they probably have oversight over all casting decisions. So this, so what's interesting is this is a pers- person or set of people with phenomenal power mm. over, as you say, over a project and who gets hired and what gets shown on screen, but is. Um, but is generally not in the spotlight. So Harvey Weinstein um, is a was a producer. Hopefully, will never be a producer again. Mm. But he was he was a very rare entity in the sense that that he was a, himself a household name. Um, but most producers, even the most successful producers in Hollywood, almost nobody outside of the industry would know their name. Mm. Yeah. Uh, um, so you speak. Um, and by by the way, for anyone who is interested, um, Naomi has a. Uh, a brilliant TED talk, which you can easily look up if you just Google Naomi McDougal Jones and TED talk. It'll it'll come up, and um, and you speak about there in terms of producers that they are the people with the resources. So, to what extent is just financial muscle a thing in the Hollywood machine, or even in independent filmmaking? Um, I mean, that's the whole game, right? <laughs> like, mm. Whoever can get their film financed, that's the thing. Yeah. Um, so, um, as your listeners may be guessing at this point, I have a bit of a, a bent around trying to get more women <laughs> to film. <laughs> they have snuck, slipped through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and that is certainly one of the biggest things we have to look at because across industries, it's shown that when women have to raise money, um, financiers are less likely to finance them. Um, in venture capital, it's very similar, uh, uh, Startup companies buy women, make back more, they have a higher return on investment. 
um, and yet they receive a tiny fraction of the overall investment dollars from venture capitalists. Um, mm, right. So definitely the money is a is a major choke point, and whoever controls the money controls the project. I mean that that's sort of the the main truth in whether you're talking about indie film or in or studio films or anything. I mean really the person who brings the money to the project generally gets the greatest share of control over everything. Mm. Um, I did a little bit of reading in the lead up to this and um, I sort of had a little bit of a sentimental look back at some of the some of the, you know, seminal articles and works on, on gender in film and women mm. in film, you know, from my, from my, uh, from my, um, undergraduate days. And, uh, mm. and I had another little look at the, the Laura Mulvey, um, yeah. uh, article from the, from the seventies. And, and then I, I came across this new concept. I'm not sure how new it is, to be honest, but uh, this concept of the female gaze as opposed to the male gaze, whereby yeah. it seems to look at these three points of, the individual filming, the characters within the film, and the spectator. And I mm-hmm. wonder what your thoughts are on on this concept of the gaze, perhaps in the way that Mulvey saw it, and and where we are now. Because you you speak about you know a a, a revolution is what you're after, and you detail yep. that in the TED talk. And I wonder how those two things line up for you. Well, so the male gaze is so pervasive. So so. Let's think about it this way. So, ninety. If you've watched mostly mainstream American movies, and and I apologize, my data is mostly about American movies. Although I know that it's it's this holds pretty true around the world. Yeah, but does, if you yeah. watch mm. mostly um, American mainstream movies, ninety five percent of all of the films that you've ever seen were by men, um, and most of those films were by white men. Mm, yeah. um, and if you think about uh, the importance of stories in our lives. Um, it, stories are, are one of the very few things that separate us from other animals, right? Because, you know, we share like 93% of our DNA with a banana. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. There's like, there's, yeah, we're yeah. like, not that. But, yeah. but, but no culture has existed on earth without storytelling ever, um, whether it's in the form of religion or myth or cave drawings or, you know, we all have we're sitting around a campfire. Every culture's always had that, which which begs the question: Okay, why is this so centrally important? And I think it is tied to consciousness, um, because as soon as you're aware of being alive, there's this whole set of very terrifying questions that are instantly attached to that. Like, why am I alive? When am I not going to be alive anymore? What's going to happen then? Uh, who am I as a separate from mm. you? Who mm, can mm. trust you? there's sort of this whole set of things that immediately comes up when, when you have consciousness. And I think storytelling is really the only tool we've had to try to organize the world in a way that makes sense so that we can get on with everything else. Um, and so, so story stories are, are the mechanisms through which we, we organize the world and we know who the heroes are and who the villains are and who we are in it. And so if you think about the fact that for our modern for really any generation that's alive now, film, which has been the primary um, mode of storytelling in our lifetimes, has come almost exclusively through the white male gaze. Mm. That's that's pretty profound. Yeah. I mean, what that is that even those of us who are not white men are looking at ourselves through the white male gaze. Mm. Um, so that it exists even when 
they are not present. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and and in in and in in our minds as the spectators, um, right? You know, I, I I wonder what you think about at spectators in general. I mean, it, to me, sometimes I've felt like the idea of the gaze assumes a certain amount of passivity on the part of the spectator, mm. and I wonder because as as someone who you know, with a theatrical education and then an, an education in writing and film studies, I wonder if there's just a certain subset of of spectators that are just a bit and that that are just enough aware of what's going on behind you know behind the curtain or behind the camera to not be fooled, <laughs> and whether well, there's then a larger or how, how do you view sort of the the spectator in that regard? So I think. Um, certainly there are more overt instances of this, right? Like you see an old man on screen with a beautiful young girlfriend or whatever, you know, yeah. like there, there are these certain tropes that I think those of us who are a little bit more aware, we see that and we yeah. sort of roll our eyes and we go, just, oh, well. just Richard Gere in any decade, right? <laughs> right? right. Doesn't right. matter how exactly. old he gets, right. <laughs> he they, gets they the, the new... same age, he gets older. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, right. So there's those things. But what I would say is that there are a lot of subtleties to what what um, we can call the male gaze in cinema that are so that hit us at such an, a subconscious level that we don't actually get the opportunity to consciously process them. Mm. So he, here's an example, um, and this was only pointed out to me like last month. I had never noticed this. Yep. So there's this thing um, that happens in film a lot where women's bodies are fragmented meaning that there's frequently a whole shot of just part of her body, like a hand uh, running across a table or her legs swishing in the water or her knee or her shoulder or her breast or whatever as disconnected from her head. Right, so right, right. So basically like a, like a very large volume of screen time of female characters is actually their body parts as mm. disconnected from their heads. Mm. Um which I, I would defy you to come up with even a serious handful of instances in which ma- men's body parts were fragmented in that way. Mm. So, so I had never noticed this, right? As somebody who has spent at least five years very seriously thinking about this, somebody points it out to me. Now I can't stop seeing it. It is yeah. everywhere. Right, right. But, but up, but what is, but what is the subconscious and what does that do to you? It says it, it dehumanizes women. Um, it makes them their body parts. It says their bodies are um, things independent from their humanity, right? Mm. Um, there, there are things that can be looked at as separate from their humanity. Um, and so, and what seems to me particularly dangerous about that, that sort of thing is that it enters our brains and we see those images, but we but we don't notice it enough to process that subconsciously. Mm. So the 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 more nuanced implications of it just slide straight into our subconscious that's 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 rough um because i i'll admit that uh i haven't noticed that and i would i probably would partly put that down to just the refinement of the product of film right i mean this is something that has been as you say, so dominant across uh, across sure. modern media, it is. It's more than popular media. It's it's 
you know, it's it really is the thing, and and it's and it's and it's yeah. strange to me that it's the thing where it's it seems to be the most problem. Like it, I've done a bit of reading on certainly in Australia, it looks like representations of not just women but the LGBT community and minorities yeah. in Australia is is actually not that bad on television, and then in cinema it continues to be a yeah. to be a real thorn in the side. And I, and you speak a little bit about in your TED talk about the those that have well Pat let's just say the producers that have or the studios that have the resources and the power aren't willing to freely give it up and right. that strikes me as a problem that's probably across a lot of industries but so how yeah. so what do you want to just in your, you do it in your TED talk but, you, but do you want to just quickly run us through your, your four point plan for a revolution uh, yeah totally so um, well <laughs> It's, it's been slightly expanded in my book, so I'm going to have to see if I can remember it here. But um, <laughs> no so, uh, well, so for one thing, audiences are a big ally of us women trying to get into the industry because or some of us have decided actually that we're done trying to get into the industry and are just staging full scale revolution. But in any event, the audience is a key part because um, you can vote with your dollars. Um, And now more than ever, there definitely are films still being made by women um, because we can crowdfund, because we have social media, because we have these streaming platforms, we can get them to you through. Um, But we need your money. (laughs) We need Mm. your eyeballs. We need you to to vote by watching our movies. So you can commit a feminist act by watching films by female directors. If you need help finding them... um, uh, there's a website called moviesbyher.com. That's a that's a sort of starter database of films by women. Um, yeah. There are also great lists all over the internet. Um, so that's one. So if you're a, if you're a if you're anybody, watch films by women. If you can commit to watching one film a month by women, that is a huge start. Um, if you're a female filmmaker, we desperately need you to make your movies. Um, it's, we waste a lot of time as women. And and as you say, this applies to people of color and LGBTQ and everybody who's a non-white cis man by waiting for the system to pick us. And we think if we're just good enough and special enough and talented enough that they will pick us. Mm -hmm. And we really, really have to be honest with ourselves about the numbers, which is that 95% says they're not going to pick you. Um, and, and not for a good reason, but because you're not a white cis man, um, and mm. so we have to pick ourselves, and that means crowdfunding, and it means um, learning how to talk to investors ourselves, and it means putting together our own teams and just making our films happen absolutely however we can, um, and getting them to audiences who want them, who who demonstrably want them. Mm. Um, okay, so that's two points. Uh, <laughs> three points. <laughs> I might just stop you there. We'll, we'll we'll go get into the next two. I'm going to head to a break. This is Joy ninety four point nine. I'm okay. speaking with. Naomi McDougall-Jones will be back right after this. Joy! So, Naomi, you were taking us through the four-point plan for a revolution. This is Joy 94.9, so let's head into point three. Okay. So, point three. This is very embarrassing. I'm having to look them up. <laughs> <laughs> did you, you didn't just Google yourself, did you? I did just Google myself to find <laughs> you, my transcript. <laughs> you, you, know, you, know like, you know you've turned a corner when. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so here's so here's the reason that I can't remember this, which is that in the course of writing this book, um, I've come up with a radical larger plan. So, okay, great. But, but okay. so uh, so point three is uh, 
that we need also serious investment dollars in films by women. So we can get so far with crowdfunding, but realistically, that's not going to get us out of the micro-budget film range. And um, most people don't see micro-budget films. So if we're going to make a serious impact on the culture and in the world, we need serious investment dollars. Um, So if you can invest in films by women, do. Again, their films actually make more money per dollar spent. Um, Mm. I have that data. It's cited in my TED Talk, so go find it. Um, And then then the fourth point is that we have to disrupt the system through business solutions Um, because the way that films are financed, the way they're distributed is not only discriminatory against um, non-white cis men, but also is incredibly archaic and um, piled on with middlemen and just does hasn't yet adapted itself to the internet age, to globalization, mm. to streaming. So we are we are making new content and then still trying to get it through a system that is a not equipped to recognize the value in it and b doesn't really know how to market it anyway um so we need companies to come in and disrupt the financing models and uh disrupt the distribution models and there's a lot of money to be made in both places because again hollywood is just so far behind the eight ball on this they're not responding to audience demands um and they're not responding to technology fast enough well, there you go. Uh, it's a, um, it's a, it's absolutely a conversation worth having, and I think it's a battle worth fighting as well. I mean, it, it, you know, it it does continue to surprise me that um, that this that this isn't something that can be more quickly corrected for. I mean, it just yeah. it's one of those things that. Uh, it just strikes me as odd when the numbers are there, the writing's on the wall, and yet. A, 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 yeah. a small group of people can't seem to get it into their heads that there's a change that needs to occur. It's a, it's a, it's a strange yeah. thing. Um, well, well, it's sort of strange, but again, the the people in power are really happy with the system as it exists. There's a lot of fame and a lot of money and a lot of power at stake here that they're uh, not that interested in losing. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Naomi, for speaking with us. It's been an absolute pleasure, and um, I feel like we didn't 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 get even um, as deep as I would like to get, and it might be worth having another conversation at another, at another time um, sure. because um, it's uh, yes, yeah, it's a really wonderful area to look at, and something I'm really I love doing. I love making films, and I love watching films, and um, I like you saying your TED talk. I want all stories to be told. I think that would be a better world. It would. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Naomi. Joy. This is Joy 94.9. You're listening to What Happens If. You know, I just realized that I haven't at any point during the show given the show a name. <laughs> what am I What Happens Ifing? Is this What Happens Ifing gender in film? Am I What Happens Ifing we revolutionize gender in film? But then that doesn't quite get to the heart of it because the inequities are not just across male and female. It's across minority groups of all kinds. The underrepresentation is rife. 
<laughs> I'm always looking for good words to throw out there to you lucky, lucky ducks. I had a little read of um, some data from 2016. I'm fairly certain it wouldn't have changed all too much. Um, but there was a study done by University of South Carolina into major motion pictures released from 2007 to 2014. And of 700 motion pictures that were studied, 0.04% of leading characters were gay. The study gathered information showing that out of 4,610 characters in the films, transgender characters were non-existent. And those characters that were labelled from the LGBTQ community were portrayed negatively. So they're in the midst of a dysfunctional relationship of some kind or other. I mean, this kind of failure in representation is, like I said, rife. There seems to be just no interest from the dominant... Uh, producers, and, and I, when I mean the, the word producer quite broadly there, I mean, it could be a film producer. It could be a studio that employs a number of producers to uh, action their slate of films across a period of time. And Naomi McDougal, Naomi McDougal Jones, who I spoke with before, she speaks about in her TED Talk um, that she had recently looked at the slate of films from Hollywood that were going to lead up to now, 2018, so from 2016 to 2018, and there were zero female directors attached to films from those studios. So I wouldn't be surprised if the problem persists it seems to be a kind of disease that is hard to get rid of yeah uh i i intend to do another episode on this topic but we are going to move more into the area away from the male female binary and and more into um trans gender representation um and we'll do that with Stephen A. Russell he's a what happens if favorite I feel like Stephen and Dan and I we've done our two seasons right it's like it's like it's like the office or extras from the BBC you, you know we've done our two seasons we did the uh we did the apocalyptic films we did the Mars films now we're doing the Christmas special yeah we're gonna get a little bit more in depth with Stephen about um, this idea of representation in film, about Hollywood as a dominant media producer and um, therefore uh, um, having, having a dominant influence on billions of people a year. I mean, likely a lot more than that. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what the figures would be, but... I think you could sort of name every uh, rich 
I suppose, a first world nation in the world and they've likely got a, uh, a profitable and, um, uh, diffused, uh, motion picture industry. You think of Korea, Japan, China is just going for it in that space. Um, Australia, uh, and obviously the US, Canada, and then, you know, you've got places like Brazil. I mean, you know, this is, this is a huge, huge part of our lives. Um, these stories are all around us. And, um, for, for whatever reason, like we've said, cinema is somewhere in the dark ages. <laughs> it's really weird. It's really weird. Um, I, I feel like there's a, there's an interesting connection here with this recent, um, Google strike where workers walked off the job. And one of, one of the things I read from their official statement, um, was that they was, they were demanding a commitment to end pay and opportunity inequity. I think that's a really important inclusion there of pay and opportunity. A lot of what Naomi was speaking about was opportunity, right? It's one thing for there to be a uh, a pay gap, and that's a real thing. Um, it's another thing for there to be an opportunity gap. I mean, it, that's just nasty, <laughs> isn't it? Isn't that just nasty? Am I thinking about that in a strange way? It seems like just a mean thing to do to uh, uh, rob a, a, a certain group or groups of people that make up the majority of the population on the planet, all in all, to just completely rob them of telling stories from their point of view. It's a... It's not really nice to think about. And I hope that perhaps we all go away and when you're watching films, first of all, follow that four-point plan. Go for it. If you like to tell stories, tell them. And through continuing to fight that fight, I think that the opportunity will eventually come. Uh, uh, one would hope that we all learn our lesson eventually, especially um, <laughs> white males like me. <laughs> Uh, I, I hope I'm not uh, uh, complicit in that. Um, uh, yeah, and I think the one of the the real critical ones there is 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 voting with with your with your viewing, voting with what you go and um, view at the cinemas. Um, you know, um, as I said at the start of the show, there's this whole catalogue of films now that should, that could and should be re-examined in light of where we are as a species now and what we know about what people want to watch in the cinema. Uh, we can re-examine all the Weinstein films. We can re-examine the classic Hollywood films. You know, we can do that. And I think it's worth doing. And but yeah, voting with your feet is a really good one. I think um, I I know I'd like to try and do that. And um, 
Yeah, it's not hard. I mean, you're lucky to be able to go to the movies, so, you know, make a choice. Um, I'm going to finish with this song because uh, I just think that it kind of works. <laughs> that's that's pretty much how I pick the music. I pick it because it kind of works. And it's it's something that I I sort of think of <laughs> when I'm thinking about what the show has been about. And um, this is what I think of when um, I was thinking about what the show is about. <laughs> and it might not be quite right, but it's what came into my head. And then I found it. Join me next week. Um, it'll be what happens if I'm not quite sure again, but I'm going to speak to Stephen A. Russell and we're going to talk film more, but from a slightly different angle. Um, this has been What Happens If on Joy 94.9. Stay tuned for more coming up on the programming this evening. Something
Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.